The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, now we have the privilege to go to God's Word together in Scripture, the Bible. So I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Acts 17 on the back of your bulletin, title of the sermon, and an outline, if that's helpful for you. We'll be looking at Acts 17, 24 to 34. If you haven't been with us, we're going through the book of Acts, 28 chapters in your English Bible. And we've gone more than halfway through. And the book of Acts is a summary of how the church started 2,000 years ago and how the early apostles and early Christians submitted to the obedience of Jesus to spread the gospel and to grow the church. And it covers about the first 30 years of the church. And so that's where we're at. And so we've been covering the ministry of the apostles and the ministry of the apostle Paul most recently. Um, While you're turning there and looking, and we do have children's church today, yes? So if you're a fifth grader on down and you haven't yet headed to the back of the lobby, you can join the rest of them. And we will continue uh, looking at the book of Acts. Where we pick up in the story is now with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. It's about 15 years after the church has started, probably even more than that. Uh, the Apostle Paul used to be a Christian killer. His name was Saul. He was a scrupulous Jew, hated Christ, Jesus, hated Christians, persecuted them, and even tried to murder many Christians. And then God came and invaded his life with the gospel and Saul got saved. He became a Christian, and then his name became Paul. And then God commissioned Paul to be an apostle and a missionary to Gentiles, the non-Jewish world. And so now we are in the part of the book of Acts that's covering the ministry of the apostle Paul, who for a good, the last 20 years of his life, gave his life to traveling as far as he could to many different cities, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he typically would go places that had never heard the gospel before, places that didn't have scripture or talking to people that were not familiar with the Old Testament. And that was his niche. That was his ministry. And he was planting churches along the way. Right now we're in the middle of his second missionary journey and he's traveled probably several, yeah, several hundred miles by now. He's been gone from his home church for several months by now. He's visited several churches. He's planted a few new churches. He's been beat up and thrown in prison at least one church so far in Philippi, and then he's been chased out of a couple of cities, and he's on the run. And then he'll go to the next town and preach there and sometimes start a church. And so where we catch Paul now is in uh, the city of Athens, the world-famous city that it was still 2,000 years ago. It was uh, renowned for many things historically in Paul's day, and so this was probably the first time Paul got to visit uh, the city of Athens. It was the intellectual capital of the world, Um, it was the philosophical capital of the world and it was kind of the arts capital of the world as it had these just unparalleled and amazing uh, sculptures of art and so many other things it was noted for. And so Paul's actually just passing through Athens, but he has opportunity while he's there waiting a few days, maybe even a couple of weeks, we don't know, where he can't just sit idle. He feels compelled to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with this pagan, it's totally pagan, and it is filled with idols. And so he's prompted by God's spirit to preach with the gospel for anyone in his path or anyone that will listen. And so that's how he began. And he started with the Jews in a Jewish synagogue. He went in there as the guest rabbi, preached from the Old Testament scriptures, but also brought new revelation about who Jesus Christ was, that he was the Jewish Messiah. And in addition to preaching to Jews in the synagogue in Athens, he went out into the marketplace, the uh, Agora, it was called, huge, massive marketplace where the whole town and center met and congregated and commiserated and sold things and bought things. And it was just milling with people. And Paul took the opportunity to go and just start basically street preaching and talking to people individually as well, telling them about this Jesus Christ. To, To most of those being that they were, most of the folks in Athens were Gentiles, they were non-Jews, they didn't, have, they didn't know anything about the Old Testament for the most part. 
So the things that Paul was bringing from the Bible were very foreign and strange to them. But he's telling them, anyway, this is the truth. This is the true God. And he's telling about the Old Testament, but he's also talking about Jesus Christ. He's rubbing shoulders, and then he makes a scene, and people realize there's this foreigner who has invaded our town, and he's speaking strange things. And so the leaders of the city of Athens, the philosophers, go and kind of corner him and begin asking questions about this new teaching that he's brought to town they're not familiar with. And one of the... Two of the strangest things they've heard is this man named Jesus. They've never heard of him before, many of them. That God became a man down on earth and that he was crucified, even though he didn't do anything wrong. And the other strange thing was that he rose again from the dead. He came back to life, and that's the destiny of all men. That was totally foreign to their worldview. These pagans, these Greeks, their Greek worldview, because the worldview that dominated among them and the influential schools at that time of political or of philosophical thought were the Epicureans and the Stoics, because that's what it says right there in the passage. The Epicurean and Stoic philosophers came, verse 18, and they began conversing with Paul. And their worldview in terms of how things ended was with either annihilation, when you die, you turn into nothingness, you turn back into matter, so annihilation. No immortality of the soul. That, that thought reigned supreme. Another one that reigned supreme in their day was a form of reincarnation. Like high stoicism, for example. You die and then you eventually come back again, reincarnated in some form. Everything just happens all over again. And we know that today is reincarnation. So nothing new under the sun. Those are worldviews that dominate today. What they didn't understand, what they didn't hear before was the idea of resurrection. And they just couldn't get over that. What in the world? What do you mean resurrection? You come back the same part. You die and you get raised again by God and you actually have a physical body that's very similar to what you had in this life and God's the one that raised you and you're going to live on for all eternity in that resurrected physical body. And here the Greeks thought anything that which was physical was evil for the most part. That matter was evil. Many thought that. So this idea of resurrection and living on in perpetuity for all eternity in a physical resurrected body just was contrary to their senses and how they taught in their entire worldview. So that's problematic. So these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they literally take Paul after accusing him of names, a seed picker, a babbler, a fool, an idiot, and then they actually kind of take him and put him kind of on trial at what was called the Areopagus, which was a council of men in the city who were in charge and monitored and micromanaged morality, religion, and the thought of the day. They were the thought police. And here's this guy who was an intruder and a visitor, and he was kind of violating a loud and tolerated thought because they'd never heard it before. Because the Greeks prided themselves on their wisdom and how smart they were, and they knew everything. And if they knew everything, they would have heard of these views that he's bringing, but they never heard of these views. So they're new, and Paul knows that they don't. So that's intimidating. So let's criticize him, and then we'll put him on trial and interrogate him, see if we can get him to contradict himself and look like a public fool, which they aren't able to do. So that's the setting. Paul is on trial, if you will, in a formal setting at the Areopagus, which was Like I said, it was a court of men, and it's kind of a hearing. And Paul quickly turns it around. Instead of being interrogated and fielding their questions of criticism, Paul uses it kind of as a soapbox to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he unloads. We're going to look right now. Let's go ahead. Verse 24 to 34. In less than 10 verses... Paul preaches a sermon that probably, who knows, it could have lasted 10 to 30 minutes, maybe even longer for all we know. But this is a summary of his sermon that Luke is giving. These are the high points. He's not writing everything out. And it is loaded. Even though there's about less than 10 verses of the content of what Paul preached, it is dense. It is rich. It can't be exhausted in a 40-minute sermon. It is really a challenge. But there are themes throughout the sermon. 
that Luke makes very clear and that Paul wanted to highlight. There are themes. We're going to pick up on those themes. Um, Looking at this sermon, so Paul is standing before these educated, intellectual, arrogant, pompous, proud, self-trained philosophers. And Paul begins his talk in verse 24, or his sermon. But that was after verse 23. He begins talking to them, and he says, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious, because all human beings are religious. We are, made, we are created in God's image. We are created religious beings. There are no non-religious beings. Atheists or agnostics who try to tell you that they are not religious, they are either self-deceived or lying. They worship something. They give their loyalty to something. They give their time, energy, and everything else to something. It's inescapable. Humans are inescapably religious. It's how God made us. So Paul tells them, men, I see that you're very religious in all respects. For How do I know that? Well, while I was passing through your city, examining all of your objects of worship, which were all over the place, I also found an altar with this inscription because all these altars were dedicated to specific gods. Uh, the God of arts, the God of crafts, the God of war, the God of love, the God of this, the God of that. The God. And then he comes to one and says, the, the God of nothing. It's like to an unknown God. And it just kind of jumped out. What? Here's a altar dedicated to an unknown God. This God doesn't even have a name. And the word there, to an unknown God in verse 23 is agnuntes. Agna, it's where agnostic comes from. Gnosis is knowledge, ah, before it means to not, no knowledge, to the unknown God. So they had literally an altar dedicated to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, you have, a, you have an altar to an unknown God. And you're worshiping an unknown, how can you worship somebody or something you do not know? And Paul says at the end of verse 23, therefore that... Uh, what you worship in ignorance. Now, that was a, that was actually an insult to them. They thought they knew everything. They prided themselves on uh, being intellectually superior to everybody. They knew it all. Paul didn't know anything. And yet he turns it around and says, you admit that you're ignorant, and I'm going to expose your ignorance. So this is a wee bit confrontational. In light of what you don't know, I'm going to fill in the gaps. I'm going to tell you the truth about what you don't know, the most important thing in the world, and that is God the Creator, God the Judge, God the Savior. I'm going to proclaim to you. I'm not going to philosophize with you. I'm not going to resort to rhetoric. I am going to proclaim to you. I am going to preach to you, he warned them. He's got a preacher on his hands. So let's go ahead and look and see what he preached. Verse 24, 34 and following. Before I do that, I want to ask a question. A couple questions for you that are Christians. What do Christians have in common with Unbelieving Jews. Think about that. Okay, what do Christians... Say you were going to evangelize or try to give the gospel to a Jew. Someone literally who maybe goes to synagogue. They're a Jew. But they're not a believer. What today? What do Christians have in common with Jews? The answer is the Old Testament. We share that knowledge base. So when you're witnessing... To a Jew who's familiar with the Old Testament, you do what Paul did in Acts chapter 13, and you actually use the Old Testament, and then you preach Jesus in light of, you show where Jesus is prophesied and actually exists in the Old Testament, and you culminate with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You tell the Jew, the unbelieving Jew, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of your scriptures. That's how you witness to a Jew. So the common ground is Old Testament scripture, among other things. Paul modeled that time and time again. Next question. What do Christians have in common with Humanistic pagans who maybe have never heard anything about the Old Testament. They don't know anything about the New Testament. we got a lot of them around here in Northern California and in our area. Pagans, either of some other religion or they claim to be atheistic or agnostic. What do we as Christians have in common with humanistic, atheistic, agnostic, polytheistic pagans? Some Christians say, well, we don't have anything in common with them. But that's not true. The answer, according to the Bible, is general revelation. We have in common with unbelievers general revelation. That's what we have in common, and we see that in what Paul's talking about here. There's two kinds of general revelation. Conscience, 
Every human being was made in the image of God, and every human being from conception has a conscience, a moral barometer, the imprint of God Almighty, the image of God on the inside. It is internal, general revelation, the conscience. So when we speak to the unbeliever, it doesn't matter where they're from, their education, their worldview, what they know, what they don't know. You preach to their conscience. God put that in them. I have a conscience, you have a conscience, every human being has a conscience. It's a moral barometer and it is sensitive. It is like, it's like when you're doing an electrician and you're doing uh, electricity throughout a house and you're pulling wires and all that stuff. One thing you check for is do you have a hot wire, a hot wire, a hot, what does that mean? Uh, a wire that if you touch it or grab it with the pliers <laughs> like that and then you could die like on the spot. You don't want a hot wire. So you want to turn all the power off. Every human being has a hot wire. That's how they're wired and that hot wire is their conscience. So that when you speak to it, you speak truth, biblical truth they've never heard before. It is resonating, it is connecting, and a reaction is happening deep in their soul. That's our common denominator. So when we preach to pagans, we preach to the conscience. God will do his work of Holy Spirit and his truth. Uh, So general revelation is a common denominator through conscience and also through creation. That's uh, Psalm 19, Ecclesiastes 3, Acts 14. Romans chapter 1. So we have in common with unbelievers, even pagans, creation. The fingerprints of the creator God are everywhere. For example, the stars. We have that in common. So I could stand here with a total atheistic, agnostic, uneducated unbeliever who has never been exposed to the scriptures whatsoever, never heard about Jesus. One thing we do have in common, in addition to his conscience that I'm going to preach to, is also creation. He looks up there and he sees stars. I look up and I see stars. That's in, that is our commonality. What is the difference? He has a wrong interpretation of what those stars are and how they got there and what they're for. And so my job as the Christian, I need to explain to him, I need to give him the right interpretation of creation, how that star got there, what it is. Because many false religions and worldviews, they see the stars, they are awed by creation, and they worship those stars. Carl Sagan was probably most the most famous uh, person like that who was an atheist in the last 50, 60 years. And he did that TV show called The Cosmos. And he was awed by creation. And he thought the stars and the planets were beautiful, which is true. And instead of looking at the creator behind the cosmos, he worshipped the cosmos. He worshipped the stars. He said creation was eternal. It's always been it. That's where we came from. So we have the same evidence but we have different interpretations. So we need to bring special revelation, revelation revealed by God to interpret creation properly for the unbeliever. Because an unbeliever, because they are blinded by sin and blinded by Satan and fallen and finite in their knowledge, an unbeliever cannot properly interpret creation. That information is not accessible unto themselves. It's not intuitive. It is not common sense. It is not innate or inherent. It needs to come from without, and that's, Special divine revelation from Almighty God. And that's what, just so you know, that's what Paul is doing for these pagans. He is bringing information they've never heard before because it comes from God. It comes from the Old Testament scriptures, even though they don't know that. And it comes from Paul, who's an apostle, who Jesus speaks through. So that's what's going on here. And the emphasis of what Paul is doing. So you as a Christian could go up to any pagan. It doesn't matter. uh, Atheist, agnostic, whatever who's never heard anything, and you can immediately begin a conversation with them and and give them the gospel. And the way you do it is you model what Paul did here. What did Paul do here? The main thing Paul is doing in this short passage is he is giving these unbelievers the doctrine of God, a biblical view of God. He's giving them a theistic, monotheistic, biblical worldview by which to interpret all of reality. So that is Paul's emphasis. You can't preach the gospel without preaching a fully-orbed doctrine of God that comes from the Bible. You can't preach the gospel in isolation. So our gospel needs to be meaty and founded on the full counsel of God's word. And that's what Paul is doing here. Literally, because these uh, pagans don't have a Jewish background and aren't familiar with the monotheistic one true God of the universe named Yahweh, Paul has to start from the very beginning with with pagans. And what is that? Who the God is. They worship gods, a multiplicity of gods, to an unknown God. Uh, He's an unknown God. I will tell you who that God is you worship. He can be known. His name is Yahweh. He is the creator. That's what Paul's going to do. And not only is the creator, here are 24 other attributes about the true God you need to know. 
Did I say 24? That's how many I counted in this passage. In less than nine verses, Paul highlights and accentuates at least 24 attributes about the true God. And about 17 things this true God does. And it culminates with the person of Jesus Christ. That's how you preach to an unbeliever. You can't have a myopic, stilted, circumvented view of God. That's not sufficient. Like many people have, well, God is love. Love, love, love. And that's it. I hear that all the time. Many unbelievers say that all the time. Well, God is love. God, that's all they want to focus on. No, that's, that's not, God is love, but that's not all God is. That is a very Im, unbalanced view of God. God is love and many more things. God is love and holy and just and righteous and omniscient and omni- I mean, you can go on. And that's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Old Testament teaches. That's the God you need to know. What is eternal life? Jesus asked at the end of his life as he's praying just before his death in John 17. And he says, this is eternal life that they may know the one true God. That is salvation. That is eternal life. Knowing God for who he is. Not an imposter, not a myopic version of God. The full counsel of almighty God. And so here we go. Let's watch the Apostle Paul. It's amazing. Paul starts at the very beginning with these uneducated, ignorant pagans. And he starts with God. He starts with creation at the very beginning. And that's what you do. You start with creation. You tell them, where, here's where you came from. You don't even know it. You don't believe it. Here is where you came from. Here is your creator. Let me introduce him to you. And he goes and he talks about the creator very specifically. Then he goes from the creator to the cross. How appropriate is that? And you've got to go in that order. You take him from creator to the cross and then the consummation. What's that? How it all ends. That's judgment. Now you're accountable. Now you need to repent. So that's Paul's chronology. So that's what you should do with any pagan unbeliever. Creation, cross, consummation. Let's watch Paul do that. And all the while, he's emphasizing these amazing attributes of God. Let's start at verse uh, verse 24. I've got... 11 attributes that I'm highlighting here. Actually, there's more than that. There's about 25 that I counted. But we'll just highlight many of these as we go. Truths that uh, Paul communicated to these unbelievers. Number one is that the God, the true God is monotheistic. There's only one God. That was the first truth. They believed in many gods. Many, many, many polytheistic. He dispels that. He, and by the way, he keeps calling them he, singular, all throughout. Paul refers to God as a singular being. He, 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 not polytheistic. He is a singular triune God. Singular as deity who has three persons, we know from the New Testament. But it's one God. That's what we believe in. This, this was totally radical. The Greeks believed in more than that. So it's the true God as the monotheistic transcendent creator. That's the first truth. That's the beginning of verse 24. Let's look at it. Transcendent. What does that mean? Transcendent is that which is beyond ourselves, meaning that God is bigger than his creation. God is outside of his creation. Uh, God does not God doesn't uh, start with his creation. God is not a part of his creation like they believed. God is totally separate outside of and greater than his creation. Totally holy other in many of his attributes, the transcendent God. And many of the Greeks thought, no, God, he's a part of us. I can become a God. I'm God. That thing's God. That rock is God. That plant is God. That animal is God. No, God is transcendent. That's what he's emphasizing here. And that God is the creator. Many of these Greeks didn't believe that God was the creator. As a matter of fact, the Epicureans believed that uh, material was eternal. It's always been here. The atoms. They even called it atoms back then. Isn't that amazing? The atoms that make up everything, the building blocks of everything, they've been around forever. They are eternal. And then when something dies, it goes back and turns into atoms. So they didn't really believe in a creation, some of these Greeks. And so Paul just takes that head on. Verse 24, the God, the God, singular, the God who made the world, boom, just shattering their worldview. He made the world. He created the world. Not only did he create the world, he created all things in it. So much for evolution for us today. Darwinian evolution is shattered in the beginning of verse 24 with the, the two statements. God made the world and he made all things in it. All things in it. That's right out of Genesis 1 and 2. That's what Paul is. That's his frame of reference. Paul took Genesis 1 and 2 literally. Uh, he, he believed in six days of creation. And he says the God who made the world, that's Genesis 1, 1 and all things in it. 
everything else on those six days. Human beings created special and apart from animals on day six were created separately from the animal kingdom, from the plants, from the rocks and everything else. That's why he says this. The God who made all made the world and all things in it. It didn't evolve. He made them. Humans didn't evolve from lesser life. God made humans directly. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't belong to the earth. He's not part of the earth. He didn't come out of the earth. He is separate from the earth. And so that's what I mean by transcendent. So that's his first point, which is multifaceted. The true God is monotheistic. There's only one. He is transcendent, separate from his creation, and he is the creator of all things. And he keeps calling him a he with a personal pronoun. He's a personal God. He's not a thing. He's not a force. He's not an it. He's not a what. He's a he. He's a person. That's divine revelation. So the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. Point number two, what else did he say? Paul emphasized the true God is sovereign. Sovereign. Sovereign is made up of two parts. Sovereign, the word sovereign. The last part of the word sovereign has reign, R-E-I-G-N, reign. Who reigns? A king, a monarch, a despot, someone who is totally in control. With God, that's he reigns as king. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is the mighty. He is sovereign. He's totally in control. He's not dependent upon anybody. Nobody tells God what to do. That's what sovereign means. He is in charge, and he has the power to carry it out. He makes the decision, and nobody thwarts his decisions. What he says goes. I love Psalm 115.3 that says this. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. <laughs> That's sovereignty. They did not believe in a God like this, a completely sovereign God. They believed in gods that were almost... Uh, semi-human that could be conjoled and uh, manipulated. And you could tweak them like a marionette. They could be uh, subject to the will and the fancies of man. They did not believe in a sovereign God. And here Paul is emphasizing God is totally in control. He is the Lord. And that the emphasis there is the Lord. He is the Lord. God is the Lord. He is the master. He is the king. He's in control. He is sovereign of heaven and earth. That every phrase is just shattering their worldview and, and alarming. And I mean, they can't even recover from the last blow when Paul lays on another one that shatters their worldview and their conception of God. But he keeps going. So God is sovereign. Also masculine and person. God is masculine, absolutely. That's what God, the Bible's revealed. He's a person. God is a person. God is actually three persons, but God is a personal being. And God's is communicates to humanity the fact that he is masculine. He's not a man, but he has revealed himself as being masculine. He's always called he. Jesus referred to him as the Father. I revealed the Father to you. And God is referred to as he. Jesus was a man. The Holy Spirit is referred to by he, not she. Very important. We don't understand the fullness of what that means, but in heaven we will, this masculinity. Yes, the fullness of the genders, masculine and feminine, are actually bound up in the Trinity. Because God made males and females in his, in his image. So even femininity comes from his image somehow as he nurtures and cares for his people. Like a caring mother, he says to the Thessalonians. But God reveals himself as masculine. He also reveals himself as personal. Someone you could know. That is a foreign concept to every worldview in the history of the earth. The Greeks didn't think, oh, pray to uh, Ares so that you invite Ares into your, invite Zeus into your heart so you could have a personal relationship with Zeus. No. Foreign concept. Or even today, largest religion in the world, Islam. Invite Allah into your heart so you can have a personal relationship with Allah. No. They don't even think that way. No false religion thinks that way. Only Christ, biblical Christianity thinks that way that Finite, fallen creation can have a personal, intimate relationship with the transcendent, infinite, holy creator of the universe in a relationship that's closer than any human relationship you have. It is mind-boggling. My best friend is Jesus. My best friend is God the Father. And vice versa. Abraham was a friend of God. That's just amazing. 
And so all throughout, Paul is referring to God as a personal being that you can know and relate with and be intimate with. This was foreign to their worldview. Uh, Let's go on. Last part of verse 24. Uh, The true God is immense. God, the true God does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now, he is saying this in the uh, Areopagus and up above. While Paul is saying this, that the true God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. What is overhead that they're all looking at or that they can see in full view in broad daylight is the Acropolis. And on top of the Acropolis, the Parthenon that they built and made out of marble and stone and have Idols of gods inside who are dwelling inside those temples. So this is shattering what they believe, their entire world system. It is totally false. He's exposing it for what it is. The god that you say you worship up there, uh, Athena, you have three massive statues of Athena up in that building up there. She didn't live in there. She she doesn't even exist. She's not even a true god. God is bigger than that. God is immense. He is, he can't, in other words, he cannot be attained, contained. That's the immensity of God. He cannot be contained in anything that humans can make. He's bigger than us. He's bigger than our world. He's, he fills the universe and beyond. That is the true God. They had no concept of that. Number four, he goes on. Uh, the God who made the world and all things in it. Again, I'm oh, sorry, verse 20, 25. Nor is he served by human hands. God the creator is not served by human hands, contrary to what they believe, that he was to be uh, served, he needed help, he was deficient, he was weak. All their gods, they all had their deficiencies and weaknesses. Oh, we got to help them, kind of give them training wheels. Give them help. And Paul says, no. The true God and the only God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need help uh, from humans. He's not served by human hands. We need his help. They had it totally backwards. So that's verse, beginning of verse 25. Number four, the true God is self sufficient and independent what does god need from us absolutely nothing why did god create human beings some people say well because he needed us no he doesn't why did god create human beings well he needed our love no he didn't did you know that god was totally self-sufficient and just fine before he created humanity and the angels when he was all by himself as the triune god of the universe father son and holy spirit who always got along in harmony perfectly all the time God doesn't need human beings. He doesn't need our help. He is totally self-sufficient. He is totally independent of us. We don't help him do anything. That is the true God. Middle of verse uh, 25 says, as though he needed anything. He doesn't need anything. Uh, number five, on the, on the contrary, he helps us. He provides for us. That's number five. The true God is the provider and sustainer of us weak, limited, finite, fallen human beings. He doesn't need anything since he himself gives to all of us. He gives to all people. What does he give us? Life. God is the giver of life. He is the provider. Even if you're an unbeliever, God gave you life. It's a precious gift. Even if you're an agnostic, even if you're an atheist, God gave you, your life came from somewhere, it came from God. He's the provider. So he is the one who gives uh, to all people life. Not only that, he gives them breath. And all things. He gave them life to bring them into existence and he sustains them. Every breath you take, every breath I take is a gift from Almighty God. He's the sustainer. And then in the New Testament, we find out in the book of Colossians that who is the sustainer? Day by day, with every breath, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God is the provider, He is the sustainer. He needs nothing from us. Number six, the true God is rational and volitional. Volitional means He has a will. He makes decisions. He decides. He's determinative. His way is the only way. He has a plan. It is logical. The Greeks, they prided, the philosophers, they prided themselves on logic, the laws of law. They invented the laws of logic. No, they didn't. God invented the laws of logic for humans because God is the most logical thinker in the universe and he always has been for all eternity. Absolutely amazing. But that isn't what the Greeks thought. But God, the true God, the only God, he's rational. He has a mind. He can think logically, perfectly, all the time, knows everything, never makes a mistake. In in addition to that, because he's a person, he has a will, he has volition, he chooses. His decisions always stand. No one can thwart his decisions. No one can thwart his will. It's amazing. 
that's verse 26. God made from one man uh, every nation of mankind. Now, right there, that's Paul is preaching Genesis about God created Adam, one man, in the very beginning. Paul believed in a literal Genesis 1 through 3 because he was an apostle and he was correct. So all human beings on planet Earth came from one man. His name was Adam. God made Adam. That's what he's referring to. And so God determined to make one man, Adam, from every nation of mankind. We have 8 billion people on planet Earth today. They can all find literally their history in this man, specially created by God on the sixth day. His name was Adam. He was a real man. And God created Eve, his wife. She was a real person. And from the two of them came all of humanity. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Paul affirmed. That's what he's imparting to them. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. God had a plan when he created Adam and Eve. He knew that sin would be a deterrent and cause problems, but God had a plan. He overrode that plan. He has good news. He can save sinful man. And God determined before the foundation of the world in eternity past, amazingly, the middle of verse 26, God determined, see, there's his will. He is volitional. He decides. He's in charge. Having determined their appointed times. This is amazing. Did you know that God determined before the foundation of the world when you were going to be born and when I was going to be born? September 3rd, 1966, that's when I was born. God determined that in eternity past. And he's done that for every human being that exists. That is amazing. So God determined when I was going to be born. And get this, he goes on in verse 26. Not only did God determine the appointed times of me as an individual, but collectively as the nations when they would exist, but also the boundaries of their habitation. God actually determined when I was going to be born and where I was going to be born. Denver, Colorado. And you're the same. And it wasn't by chance. It wasn't by mistake. That was God's design. God gave you the parents that he gave you by design. He had a purpose in mind. He had his good in mind, his glory in mind, your good in mind when he did that. And this also refers to people, groups, and the nations, their boundaries. He determined that. He thought it through. He had a plan. It's amazing. Uh, verse 27, number 7, the true God is relational and imminent. Relational. God wants to relate to his people. He wants to have a relationship, a personal relationship with his people. Imminent. I M M I N. A N T A N T E N T is a different word, sorry. Uh, God is relational. What does imminent mean? That means he is immediately accessible. Contrary to what the some of these Greek philosophers thought, that they thought God was deistic. In other words, eh, maybe he started it, but he's not around. He's inaccessible, he doesn't listen to people, he doesn't answer prayers, uh, he doesn't get involved in human affairs. We're we're left to ourselves. That's what they believed. That was one of the predominant thoughts in Paul's day. Paul said, no, that is not true. Not only is God transcendent, wholly separate from his creation, on the other hand, God is imminent. He's immediately accessible to his creation, including every single human being, even though he's the transcendent creator. As a matter of fact, God is the closest being to you in the world. He's closer than the person sitting next to you in terms of his accessibility, availability, and response to you. How close is God? He is a prayer Away. Jonah praying in the fish, in the gut of the fish. What is he doing? He's praying in Jonah chapter 2. Dear God! <laughs> He's crying out to God. And God is responding and listening and answers his prayer. So that's number seven. The true God is he relational, but he's imminent. He's immediately accessible. Why did God determine when you would be born and where you would be born? God had a goal in mind, especially for those of you that are saved. What was the goal? So that you would seek God. Well, I thought sinners don't seek God. They don't until God intervenes and God helps. He intervenes with the gospel. He intervenes with the Holy Spirit. He intervenes with the prayers of the saints. He intervenes when people preach the gospel to you. And then he works on your heart and enables you to respond and to seek, to legitimately seek God. That was his intent. So I was born in Denver, 1966, to the parents I had, to the family that I had, and all the circumstances in life that led up to the first time when I was 16 years old and I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time in my life that was all orchestrated by God in eternity past. So that that seed was planted, watered, and three years later came to fruition and I became a Christian. God did that. Incredible, intricate, detailed care and planning by this God, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from 
any one of us just a prayer away. And he's relational. He wants to know his people. Everybody, every human being will let you down. I don't care who they are. If you know God, he's the only one that will never let you down. Best friend in the world. Number eight. The true God is omnipresent. Verse 28. Is God everywhere? Well, yes, in the sense that he is active and present at every place in the universe. God doesn't have a body. God the Father is a spirit. The Holy Spirit is a spirit. But he's conscious of and active at every place in the universe. That's omnipresence. You can't escape from God. This was totally foreign to the Greeks and their false gods. He's on verse 28. For in God, in the one true God, we live, we move, we have our being, our very existence, no matter who we are, no matter where we are. Hebrews tells us that, Hebrews 4, that he, he knows everything about us. He sees us all the time. We can't hide from him. And then Paul says, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. We are God's offspring. In other words, we came from God the creator. That's his point. It's not that we're in the family of God naturally, but we came from a creator. We have a common creator. We are his offspring. We are his descendants. So they actually, from one of their pagan poets, kind of got some, some truth correct about God. Because there's general revelation and there's common grace. And they know God exists, a creator or a divine being they're accountable to. And Paul corrects their thinking about this idea that they believed that we came from God. But God is omnipresent. Verse number nine, the true God is spirit. Didn't have a body. They, they thought God, gods had bodies and they were idols and they could be touched and manipulated. Verse 29. Being then the children of God or the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature or the true God is like gold or silver or stone. In other words, uh, these idols you have, they're wrong. They don't, they don't represent the true God. This is illegitimate worship. It's, it's good of you to, to believe in a God, but you've got to think the right thing about God. It's good that you think you came from God, but you understand you need to understand that relationship properly. We ought not to think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Because God is a spirit. God doesn't have a body. Jesus didn't have a body before he was born of Mary. Jesus existed in eternity past, as a spirit with the Father and the Son. I mean, with the Father and the Spirit. Then Jesus took on a human body for 33 years. He died. He rose again in a physical, resurrected, supernatural body. And today, and then he ascended into heaven with that supernatural, physical body. And today, Jesus has a supernatural, physical, resurrection body, while at the same time being almighty, infinite, eternal God, somehow. I do not know how that works. But Jesus will return in that same physical body. But God is a spirit. Number 10, the true God is the moral righteous judge. Verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance. God has overlooked times of ignorance. Again, he calls them ignorant. That's an insult. <laughs> you guys think you're, you know so much. There's a lot you don't know, and you don't know about the true God. The most important thing in the world. So I'm telling you truth about this God. And that's, therefore, God overlooked times of ignorance. You know what that is? That is patience. And that is mercy. The God who is the creator of the universe is also patient and merciful. That's what it means when it says he overlooked times of ignorance. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's ignorance. Jesus prayed a prayer of forgiveness on their behalf. Of ignorance. Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance. In other words, you're hearing the truth now. You're hearing the gospel from me, the apostle Paul. And you are ignorant no longer. And therefore, you are now accountable. You are now accountable to the truth. That's where Paul's headed here. Anytime you preach the gospel to an unbeliever and they use the excuse, oh, I've never heard that before, or I'm, not, I'm an agnostic, I'm an atheist. Well, not anymore. I gave you the gospel and now you are accountable. God has no longer tolerating ignorance. You know the truth, you're accountable. God is now, verse 30, this is powerful, God is now, He is the living God. God is now declaring. He got, he's a God who communicates with human beings. Clearly, in a language they can understand, God is now declaring to men or people everywhere that they should repent. Metsanaeo, turn from their sins. Acknowledge their sin and turn from their sin. 
Really? So we can go to pagans on the street or at Stanford University or at Berkeley, where I'll be this week, or every other secular environment, and we go in there cold turkey and tell people about the true God of the Bible, that he's creator and all these things, and that he's designated Jesus Christ as Savior, Judge, Lord of the universe, and they're accountable to him, and they need to repent and bow the knee to Jesus. We can do that cold turkey? Absolutely. And Paul is modeling this for us beautifully. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all people everywhere they need to repent. No more excuses. 31. Why? Because God, that is the Father, has fixed a day, it's the end of the age, in which he will judge the world. Every human being is going to be judged by God's standard. And he's the righteous judge. He will judge the world in righteousness according to the perfect standard. Fairly, perfectly, legitimately, the world will be judged in righteousness through a man whom God the Father has appointed. That's Jesus Christ. No doubt Paul specifically talked about Jesus in this sermon. We already know he talked about Jesus earlier because they're like, who is this Jesus? Well, he's the man that God has appointed to be the judge. At the end of the age or when you die, no one judges any soul except Christ alone. That's John chapter 5. Jesus said that the Father has given him all judgment. Jesus and Jesus alone will judge every soul. And the judgment is going to be simple in terms of what is required. When you die, it's probably be, we will be asked, what did, you, what did you do with Jesus? What did you do with the gospel? That's it. That's the standard. So Jesus is the judge, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. Resurrection. There's that ridiculous notion that these Greeks just can't handle, or at least most of them. This resurrection, what is that all about? Coming back from the dead. Verse 32. Well, let's look at the responses now. So, like, this is just a snapshot of what Paul preached, but Paul definitely preached from creation to consummation, and the central focus was the cross of Jesus Christ. It was all about him. They needed to believe in Christ, his work, what he did, that he died for sin, and they need to repent from their sin, turn to God as Savior. And it's only through Christ. He is the only way to heaven. They need to embrace Christ as Savior and bow the knee to him as Lord. And Paul called on them right there to repent. And there were three responses. And there always are these three responses in a crowd. Always. Verse 32, rejection. What are the three responses to the gospel? Rejection. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, again, some began to smear. uh, The literal Greek word, they began to sneer or scoff. I mean, literally, they, they mocked him out loud. That is absurd. Go back to where you came from. That is idiotic. You are a fool. You are an idiot. I mean, they're verbally assaulting Paul. That was probably the overwhelming dominant response because it usually is in a crowd of unbelievers. But Paul is undaunted. There's another response, and that's uh, the second part of verse 32. So some sneer, and then others say, well, we shall hear you again. That's curiosity. Oh, this is interesting. Oh, let's. Uh, I'd like to know more about it. They don't respond. They don't give their life to Christ. Uh, they don't reject it and sneer, but say, oh, that's fascinating. Oh, that's interesting. A lot of times unbelievers do that as an excuse to, to get out of the conversation. Okay, I've had enough of this crazy Christian. Oh, that's all interesting. That's good for you. Oh, yeah, maybe we could talk again sometime. Not. Sometimes they're sincere. Sometimes they know it's true and a little convicted. Yeah, or actually maybe, oh, they truly can be sincere and they want to know more. And then you follow up with those people and keep watering the seed and praying for them. And many times it culminates in salvation. But if they put it off, it culminates in condemnation. The curious. Today is the day of salvation. And then the last response, a beautiful one, and that's commitment. Those who believe after those who sneer and those who put it off, verse 33. You know, after the negative response, okay, that's it. They're mocking me and sneering and scoffing, and they're just saying, yeah, uh, maybe another day. And then Paul says, okay, I'm done. So Paul just went out of their midst. Boop. Gone. Shake the dust off your feet. They heard the truth. I can't change their hearts. That's God's job. And when Paul turns away and starts walking away, there's a little entourage of people following him. Oh, Paul, wait up. 
how encouraging. Verse 34, but some men, some people joined Paul because they believed. They believed in the gospel. They repented their sin. They want to come to Paul. What do we do next? I want to know this God. I want to know this Jesus. I want to know resurrection. That's what it means. And so Paul brought them along and no doubt further explained what they need to do, uh, led them in prayer, and then probably no doubt baptized them because that was his pattern, and then added them to the group of believers. And Paul leaves in his wake a little fledgling, brand new church of the faithful in Athens. And we know this is true and historical because there are names of people that are eyewitnesses that testify to its truthfulness. Uh, one of the people that got saved was Dion, Dionysius, who's that Theariopagite. That means one of the influential guys on the council got saved. One of the men who was given the job and commission to interrogate Paul and expose him as a phony, this guy got uh, wooed by the Spirit of God and he just couldn't help himself and believed. That's awesome. He was the faithful few. He was the minority. That's the way it always is. But an influential man on that council got saved. And notice... He was probably an influential person, but because he got saved, that didn't cause everybody else to get saved just because he was influential. That isn't how it works. Oh, if only the famous people would get saved, then the whole world would get saved. No. No, sin is stronger than that, and unbelief is is stronger than that. But Dionysius got saved, praise God. And a woman, as was Luke's way, he keeps highlighting everywhere he goes. It's not just the men. Women are getting saved too because they're made in the image of God. They are valuable to God. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. Hey, there's a good baby name, Damaris, for those of you who haven't had children yet. It's rare. It's unique. I don't think I've ever met a Damaris. What a beautiful saint. Except they might ask you, is it a boy or a girl? But Dionysius and Damaris are the first fruits of the wonderful ministry that Paul had in Athens. Well, With that, I just want to close with this uh, encouragement of the way Paul shared the gospel with these total pagans. The the relevance of all of this for Christian evangelism for us is powerfully spelled out by the following pastor who said, all this truth about God is part of the gospel, or at least it is the indispensable background to the gospel without which the gospel cannot be effectively preached. Many people today are rejecting our gospel not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial people are looking for an integrated worldview which makes sense of all of their experiences we learn from paul here that we cannot preach the gospel of jesus without the doctrine of god or the cross without the creation or salvation without judgment today's world needs a bigger gospel the full gospel of scripture what paul later in ephesus was to call the whole counsel of god amen Amen. And with that, let's go ahead and pray and have a blessed Lord's Day and Mother's Day. Father, we thank you for our time together and, again, the privilege to come and worship with the saints, to be encouraged by one another and be exposed to the truth of your word. Father, we thank you that you are an amazing God. You had plans for saving your people in eternity past. Thank you that you are completely sovereign and and carry that out through the blessed Savior that you have appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. We give you all the glory and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.